um, you know, it made absolute logical sense for us. Then I think a month later, you know, Glencore said, do you want to buy the balance of, of Ernest Center? And we said, absolutely. Uh, we didn't worry about, like, you know, how are we going to do this? Yeah, you know, how are we going to integrate it? We just said, yes. We did that deal in about two months. We were building the Cal Underground. We were having challenges at Red Lake. Well, I've put pressure on the company, but make no apology for that. If you're in a cyclical business, you want to be ready, nimble, and able to act when the opportunity arrives. G'day, money miners. Day, is it Wednesday? Wednesday. It feels like a Friday. I hope it's... Oh, mate. Oh. This is Wednesday. We're tuning in from day three at Digit, Stephen Arlings. Thank God it's the last day. Got a bit of a creep for the money miner. Working conversation we just had. We got a, that was, that was, that was interesting. We, um, I don't know how after the video we put up yesterday was completely zero value to anyone listening. Um, but today we've actually got something valuable to listen to and that is Jake Klein of Evolution. The executive chairman of Evolution has grown that company into the behemoth it is, um, over the, you know, over 10 years, I think maybe 12 years, all the way from you know, Conquest through to Evolution, the M&A that they've undertaken to grow that. Um, it's quite quite remarkable. They took a lot away from that one. Um, yeah, I'm bloody, I also can't believe we managed to get, you know, A-list, A-list MDs come on our podcast after we, we just uploaded absolute rubbish yesterday, mate. <laughs> oh, gosh. JP Search. JP Search, yeah. That, mate, yeah. Good, good on these guys, Xavier and Michael. There are recruiting, uh, you know, investment bankers, um, the, and the likes, management consultants, you know, analysts, etc. Working Just start jobs. If you're coming from the corporate side or individuals as well, it's going yep. to roll. Get in touch with the guys with JP. Yeah, and if, even if you're a, a you know a corporate that needs someone, but get, get in touch with those guys because they have a good a good network of talent to talk to. Cheers, guys. And the other one, mate. What else we got to plug today? Terra. Terra. Terra Capital. Oh, geez. I, well, I actually sent these guys a text message this morning, almost apologizing for our degenerate content that we've been uploading and said, I, I apologize if there's any brand damage to you guys. And they go, nah, love it. It's the best, it's the best brand association we've ever had. So. Bondi, Langley, Dylan, cheers guys. Thanks guys. G'day, Jake. Come on. We're, uh, we're bloody thrilled to have you here. You've, uh, you've joined us. Um, like surprisingly given that our content this week has been absolutely C risk level and now we've got an A-lister with us Jonas. I'm bloody, yeah. I'm thrilled about it. But um we're excited to have you on Jake. You really improved the quality of our content for this week, so thanks for joining us. You guys must be in sales. <laughs> <laughs> keep, keep going with the compliments. <laughs> well, speaking of um compliments, we uh we heard you've been given plenty of compliments about your speech today. Um we're we're not the same in the same boat as everyone else that just uh as soon as you get off stage tells you great speech, great speech. We we had a read of it, uh, didn't have the opportunity to watch it live, but we read it and it's all about um you're making the case for gold equally again a lot of ways. And I think, you know, the the backdrop of what everyone's talking about is all of these sexy critical minerals and gold doesn't fit into that category. So, but why is why is now the time to care about gold? Well, I think because um, those uh, sexy critical minerals are overvalued at the moment. So, you know, there's been a huge amount of momentum going into them. Uh, I watched a number of the presentations. It all looks and sounds good, but there's a lot of money that needs to be spent to actually getting a lot of those uh, mines and, and producers to profitability. So gold is the barbaric relic. Um, yeah, it's a store of value. Uh, I put up a few slides which I think are going to be catalysts for... Um, 
for the gold price and, and positive catalysts. Uh, the one is U.S. Dollar, U.S. debt levels. Uh, I mean, it started out at $40 billion after World War II. It's now $31 trillion uh, and rising at $100 million an hour. So, yeah, I said by the end of tonight, uh, after the conference, to, depending on what time you stay till tonight, uh, it'll be a billion dollars higher, maybe a bit longer, uh, higher for you guys. Uh, we both had a look at that slide and um, we had, had a good look at it and thought, is, um, is the, the CEO or the executive chairman of the gold company now a macroeconomist? <laughs> but then we saw you didn't adjust for inflation, all this other stuff. So, no, 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 he's still, he's still an executive chairman of the gold company. Uh, I, 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 just, I, I, think, I think gold's a much better investment than people are giving it credit for at the moment. So I think it has lost a bit of its, uh, its aura. Um, you know, I think there are fewer gold investors. ETFs have been a big growing part of that, I think. Uh, but gold offers you know, very high margins, very good cash flow, uh, and can generate great returns. Jake, on the flip side on that, you've got, to, you've got to balance it with a bit of a copper aspect to your portfolio as well. What do you sort of make of, you know, the, the rumors and stuff we see? Barrick going for first quantum, you know, and gold businesses eyeing off copper players. Well, we were very lucky to buy Ernest Henry. I mean, it just came along... I'd looked at Cadia for a long time and realized that, you know, how do they get such low costs? Yeah, they got a huge copper credit in what's really almost a copper mine. So we thought, well, why don't we copy some, uh, copy Newcrest? Um, and we were looking around for, um, for a project with a credit. Uh, Ernest Henry came along at the time when Glencore was going through a real existential debt crisis. Uh, Ivan Glasenberg, their CEO at the time said, you've got to deleverage and the copper group was given a very tight time frame to get some money in. And we offered them a deal where we effectively bought the gold, uh, the gold contents of Ernest Henry and 30% of the copper. And we paid them $880 million up front. Uh, and then, you know, they decided that, you know, 30,000 tons of copper, which is half the economics, because uh, it, it changed. The deal changed as you went below the 1200 level where we're heading to now, where we owned half the copper. So 20 to 30,000 tonnes of copper is not really relevant to Glencore, so they sold us the rest. So we're very happy to own 100% of Ernest Henry. Uh, we like copper. Um, the challenge with a gold company having a lot of copper exposure is that the capital requirements for a big, low-cost copper mine are higher than a gold mine. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see where the gold companies can really bridge that gap and become large copper producers as well as gold. Speak of that deliberate strategy to acquire an asset with a credit. And when, you know, when we think, when the public thinks about evolution, they think at face value, low cost, low cost, low oil sustaining cost. And we all know under the numbers, um, that oil sustaining cost is driven by this large copper credit by virtue of Ernst, Ernst Henry. Uh, tell me about the, the thinking that goes into, you know, wanting the messaging to be about low cost buying credit. It seems like it was a very deliberate part of the strategy, the strategy. It was a thoughtful piece to marketing message. So I, I've always believed that, you know, the, the, the gold industry has had this bias towards trying to grow production. Every quarterly report starts with production ounces and analysts start with uh, you know, miss or, or, or exceeded guidance or, or ounces. I'm not, I, I think it's wrong. Uh, I'm not sure that gold is a scalable industry. Um, so we've kind of said the mid-tier space, six to eight assets is the right space. Uh, the rationale behind that is saying, like, is there really synergy between an asset on different locations around the globe? We don't think so. So a concentrated portfolio of high-quality assets has always been our bias, and we've said... We've taken, you know, again, it's kind of a bit of a learning from, you know, Buffett saying, I'll build a moat, make sure that if you're in a cyclical business, 
that you can withstand the cyclicality. Um, there are good times in the gold business, there's bad times. So building a portfolio of assets that really deliver uh, high margins, and if you can try and ignore the number of ounces you produce, and yeah, you know, whether you report it as a byproduct credit or, or copper tons or gold, um, it doesn't really matter. It's how much cash are you generating and how much margin are you making uh, on the capital you're deploying. Jay, so on the, on the sort of number of assets and things, I want to dig into that a bit more. You said not too long ago and just now again you're looking for six to eight assets. And Evolution, to your credit, has done a good job at sort of going from stepping stones in assets, expanding. Like, first up, what, what does an Evolution sort of asset look like? You've spoken about looking at what the majors are potentially selling. What's the, what's the perfect Evolution asset? Um, so it's, it changes over time because, remember, we, we formed Evolution with some you know, assets which were uh, non-core for Newcrest um, at the time, and we put them together with Mount Carlton, and, uh, which was in... in uh, uh, Conquest, and we had uh, Edna May in Catalpa. Uh, we only have Mount Rawdon left out of that core group of assets. So we're big believers that a gold company's job is really to manage a small, highly, highly concentrated portfolio of assets. And the challenge is not becoming too emotionally attached to these assets because there's a time in a, in a, in a journey of a company where those assets become non-core. And I think our playbook has been taking assets out of majors. Majors put themselves in good ge- geological con- uh, um, positions. But in a portfolio of assets, everyone's competing for capital. So if you go to Cal or you go to Ernest Henry uh, and you speak to geologists on the ground, they'd say they were motivating to drill the holes that we've been drilling now that have made these discoveries and things when they were in Barrack or um or Glencore's portfolio, they just didn't get traction. And we've probably had the same in our organization where Edna May or Cracker or assets like that have not got the geological spend that they needed because they didn't rank. So we big believers in selling assets as well as buying assets. Make sure you're not embarrassed when you sell an asset that someone makes the next big discovery like the Swan Zone at Postable. So we always have a contingent payment and a royalty or something like that. Uh, but it's probably better off in, in other assets. Unfortunately, to date, we haven't been embarrassed. So I want to hone in on Red Lake now. Evolution, like many other Aussie gold miners, went to Canada. And, you know, looking at, you know, here we are in mid-2023, it hasn't gone as smoothly as a lot of companies would have hoped. What, what are the main lessons from the, the last few years of acquisitions into Canada and North America? Yeah, so I spent the first part of my career in China, uh, trying to build gold mines in remote parts of China, and we succeeded there. It takes a lot of effort and time. It should be easier in Canada, uh, and it is easier. They're good miners. We speak the same language, but there are still cultural differences. It doesn't help when you're locked out of the mine that you've acquired for, eight, for the first 18 months uh, due to COVID. Uh, but fundamentally, we've put ourselves in a position where there's a massive endowment. There's 12 million ounces. Uh, the cultural change required at that mine site has been more challenging than we expected and bigger than we expected. It was an asset that was really depleted by Gold Corp and then by Newmont were just caretakers. So for five years, it just sat in the portfolio without getting any money. If you speak to people at Red Lake, uh, they would say that they funded all of Gold Corp's uh, other assets. But when they ran out of the high-grade zone, and there's history to, the, to Red Lake that's important to its future... Um, they didn't get the money back uh, to actually convert the operation into a lower-grade, more productive asset. So what I'm convinced of is that we've put ourselves in a geological uh, position, 12 million ounces. It's worth the effort. The effort has been harder than we expected. 
uh, but the reward is going to be worth it. Jake, you speak to this um, this philosophy of acquiring assets from majors as they become non-core as an important part of um, you know, evolution's uh, you know, investment thesis. Yeah. When you look at the the the, the merger between Newmont and Newcrest, um, are you almost anticipating assets to be spun out of that that would be attractive to evolution? We've said publicly that yes, Tom Palmer has said that they're interested in or they will be selling some of their non-core assets and we'll look at them. Um, you know, whether they present opportunities. The challenge which we've got at the moment is that we've actually upgraded our portfolio of assets to a point where some of our assets should be interesting to majors. Um, you know, Ernest Henry has a 17-year mine life ahead of it. It generated over $300 million of cash flow for us last year. Um, so you know, the challenge in this sector is that as you get better assets, it gets more difficult to improve the quality of your portfolio. We're committed to that, but it is harder. At which point, like I almost... I think that Ernst Henry in some ways makes the evolution a little bit vulnerable to the goldies who are needing copper exposure to stay relevant, or, or, or there's a perception that, um, that the fuel plate gold companies are going to be vulnerable to um, the, the next in row that ESG sort of debate, because there's no value in gold, and you're, you're making the case for a, a renaissance in gold, but because... Evolution has some copper exposure. It might be more interesting to, to merge with a pure gold company in, in that respect. Do you, do you a, how do you think about that theme evolving in the, in the gold major market? I, I don't. I, I don't think ESG is going to be a big impediment to the gold the gold industry. I, I think the you know the S and the G we're very good at. So then you go to the E part and the carbon footprints and you know the need to to mine gold. Um, first of all, our emissions are not very large. Second of all, I think we can get to net zero, uh, but we need the government to get the grid to renewable because 70% of our emissions are using grinding media, media um, vent, vent fans and things like that, um, which if we could get that power as renewable power, those would be zero emissions. Then you've got trucks and things and diesel, which are scope one emissions. We need the uh, OEMs to deliver us uh, the next generation of fleet, which will be electric. And you know, speaking to Caterpillar and other OEMs, they will deliver that. So I don't, I don't think the carbon footprint, subject to the government delivering a renewable grid, and that's the subject too, because I think that uh, target is very aggressive from the Australian government perspective. Um, I don't think gold's going to have a, a, an issue with getting to its targets. So what, what do you make of the likes of Bellevue going hard at this green gold thematic I think it's uh, it sounds good. It's interesting, but um, I'd like I'd like to hear from them when an investor is prepared to pay more for that green gold. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you that they're developing the market for the green gold, and that's good. We're going to be fast followers, and we will, once they establish the premium, we'll be delivering inserts. Yeah. Oh no, that's okay. Drew, you, you spoke before about you know the Warren Buffett philosophy of investing around cyclical industries. Um, I'm I'm looking back in the history of, of evolutions, M and A, um, the, the deals that the company's done. And there've been periods where evolutions announced three insane deals in two months or something like that. I mean, there's a degree of um of minute like of nimbleness to act when the opportunities are there that evolution has had historically, which has you know allowed it to have a competitive advantage to create value from M and A. Uh, I guess my question is, what, are the, what, what enabled like evolution to have that capability during that period of time? And is that, is that a factor that's still present in the company, or is it, or is it dissipated as you've grown? 
No, it's, it's definitely present. I mean, I'd say the, the, the thing which has challenged us in the past couple of years has been our operational delivery. Uh, you know, when you're not delivering operationally, it makes it more challenging. Uh, and clearly, you know, I created the circumstances which, um, uh, you know, put a lot of pressure on the company. We were, you know, the first deal we did in 2021 was with uh, Northern Style. We're selling Kandana. Um, you know, it made absolute logical sense for us. Then I think a month later, you know, Glencore said, do you want to buy the balance of, of Ernest Center? And we said, absolutely. Uh, we didn't worry about, like, you know, how are we going to do this? You know, how are we going to integrate it? We just said, yes. We did that deal in about two months. Um, we were building the Cal Underground. We were having challenges at Red Lake. So, yeah, the, the, well, I've put pressure on the company, but make no apology for that. Uh, if you're in a cyclical business, you want to be ready, nimble, and able to act when the opportunity arises. I think the real challenge for the gold industry and why investors have been disappointed time and time again has been that we act like a herd. You know, when it's popular to do deals, we do them. Uh, and when the gold price is rising, everyone talks about growth, and this is great. Uh, but you should actually be doing things uh, when things aren't that good and when it's actually more difficult to do them and when you're being counter-cyclic. Yeah. If you want to avoid group things, don't come to the evening deals, man. <laughs> I'm not going to the evening functions. <laughs> I just wanted to touch on, on the M&A once more. Is there jurisdictions, evolution rules out off the cuff? Yeah, so as I said, I spent the first part of my career building gold mines in China when globalization was a thematic. Um, China and Australia were like best of friends, uh, and it was all going to be, you know, happy for everyone. Uh, we've gone through now what is almost a decade of deglobalization. And, and when I started in China in the 90s, China knew that they needed access to raw materials. Uh, they now know categorically that they can't get security of those supply, that supply or ownership of that supply from places like Australia and Canada. So they've gone to Africa and they've gone to developing countries where they've used uh, diplomacy, they've used debt uh, to, to really access those assets. So if you're operating in Africa today, your competition is likely to be Chinese groups. Um, and, you, you know, it's not just Chinese governments. China has, over the last 25 years, grown formidable global uh, commodity companies, uh, you know, Zijin, Jiajin, Jiangxi Copper, those are companies that you should not uh, think of as old-style uh, Chinese companies. They are international companies. They are very competitive, and they have a different country risk profile to what our investor base would have. I think when, when the commodity investor universe thinks about the geopolitical dynamics and how they're impacting um, the resources industry today, the first implication that they think about is how it flows through to the battery metals industries. It's, there's not much conversation or thought into how the current geopolitical dynamics flow through the gold market. Do you have a view on that? I think my view is that it will have more of an impact on the gold price because, um, uh, you know, there's a slide in my presentation deck that talks about central bank uh, being net sellers, uh, you know, pre the decoupling in 2010 and now they're net buyers. And that's not the U.S. Uh, governments or the Australian governments, uh, central banks buying uh, uh, gold. It's more of the emerging developing countries uh, that are, are buying gold and want to decouple from the U.S. dollar. So uh, I think it will have more of an impact on the gold price. 
I think we're in, you know, if you really start entering a polarized world where there's potential conflict, and let's face it, there's a war on in Ukraine at the moment, um, and it was only, I think, four years ago, when was Trump president, uh, that he was say, saying that he could do business with Putin. I don't think Joe Biden's saying that anymore. Um, you know, you've got a situation where there's much, much more risk in the world. So investors are going to have to focus on country risk. Now, in the gold space, you know, if you want to go to emerging and interesting geology, you've got to go to uh, developing countries. Barrick has gone down that path, and they're um, investing a lot of money in Pakistan, uh, you know, for geology, not for country uh, security. Our approach is different. You know, we, we've, we actually think that it's better to go down the path of uh, good jurisdictions and find uh, districts and opportunities that you can consolidate uh, and make money out of. So in focusing on those companies, you know, the, the mid-cap sort of gold tier, something that we noticed and spoke about a lot in the last couple of weeks is the margin and the cash flow that these companies are making. And it's quite glaringly obvious to us that a lot of the companies in Africa, you know, they're trading on very cheap multiples, but they were actually making money, the likes of Wolf, Perseus, Emerald in Cambodia and stuff, versus in Australia we've seen, probably at the smaller end, but some companies go bust in a near-record gold price environment because the, the costs are just so unsustainable. So I guess the first sort of question is, uh, are costs flattening out for you guys across the business right now? They are, but let's just start with the heart of your question. There are too many gold producers uh, and gold companies put too much money into assets that are never going to make money. Um, you need you need a lot of gold. Uh, and you, I mean, you, geology is the fundamental of any of these uh, acquisitions or any of these developments. You need to get enough gold to get your return on capital. And I was at Macquarie. One of uh, you, you were there as well. Um, you know, we this is 30 years ago, way before your time. But you know, we pioneered um, gold hedging and gold and lending to small companies. And I think we created a culture in Australia uh, that meant that small explorers, developers wanted to become producers. Um, you know, you could hedge. The, the strategy or the pitch was, and Macquarie made a lot of money at that time out of uh, interest rates for 15%, um, yeah, basically getting uh, companies to uh, prove up enough reserves, uh, lend them the money. You could get a, a, a very uh, low-cost plant, which Minproc or Senko would build for like 30 or $40 million. And then generally you would discover more ounces, um, because you'd only really touch the top of those uh, those discoveries. I think the challenge here now is is that yeah, costs have gone up a lot, capital intensity is higher, uh, and you're not finding the additional ounces that you need to make those investments uh, much more profitable. When, when, I, when I was at Macquarie, Jake, one of my um, jobs in the, as, a, as a junior banker there is every every earnings season you, you write a letter to the uh, to the CEOs and chair, to the chair people, the chairperson's letter, um, and uh, we all know none of you read them, but it was a, an annoying thing we all had to do. Can you please just confirm for all of the junior investment bankers out there that you never read the earnings letters from the board back at banks? I haven't, I haven't got them. Are they, going to, <laughs> are they going to spam? I don't know. You wrote one to you. So. <laughs> what a waste of uh, time that was. Uh, there you go. And I'll wrap up. I'm just curious to get Jake's most contrarian view within the gold sector. Like, if you were to, if you were to benchmark your views against all of the, the other gold leaders in the space, what is your most contrarian view versus their consensus? Forget about the number of ounces you, you're producing. Uh, there's this absolute fixation on the top line. 
uh, worry more about the bottom line and your return on capital and treat gold like any other business. And that means only putting money into the things that actually are going to give you a return and stop being emotional about these assets. They take a lot of time and effort to get into production. Yes, there, are, there, is, a, there is a commitment and, and, and desire to make things work, but do not fall in love with your assets. Love the people who work at the assets, but do not love the assets that you can't disconnect yourself from those assets. Beautiful. Thanks a lot for your time, Jake. Really appreciate it. Appreciate it, Jake. Thanks, guys. All right, Brad. How was that, mate? Great chat. Awesome. Yeah. Pretty spectacular insight. Yeah, line yeah. We'll get getting A-listers for our C-list performance. Who's who's the next A-list we, we, we want to bring on? Who would you love to speak with? Mate, there's a few in the works, but we'll keep the money mining. It's <laughs> Ben. All right. All right. Brad, we just want to say cheers to all our partners out there. JP Search, Anytime Exploration Services, the guys at Terra Capital. K-Drill. That's it. Beautiful. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you very much. One more thing, JD. Big, 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 big thank you to Debanali's Kalgoorlie. These guys have let us set up inside their restaurant slash bar slash pub slash cafe, which is where we are filming right now, as you can see, for the last three days. Oh, what a legend. Thanks, Luciano. The information contained in this episode of Money of Mine is of general nature only and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular person. Before making any investment decision, you should consult with your financial advisor and consider how appropriate the advice is to your objectives, financial situation and needs.